Now, I don't know about you, but I remember being talked down to and patronised a lot as a child. My guests on today's show, episode 15 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast with me, Anthony Samroth, is Rosalind Ross, the author of An Objectivist Theory of Parenting. Of course, when we recorded this interview a few years ago, she had not written that book yet. However, she had had a really funny viral video on YouTube called How Not to Treat Children or Anyone. And in this conversation, we had the most fantastic discussion about children, families, and the kind of world that we could all create together. Since we've all been children, I'm sure you'll love this show. Rosalind's a childcare expert with over 20 years experience working with children, 10 of them as a super nanny for wealthy who's who's in Beverly Hills. And before that, she spent a decade tutoring kids many of whom had learning disabilities. She's well-versed in parenting, child psychology, relationship psychology, the history of childcare and family life, childcare around the world, philosophy and physical health, having read over 400 books on that subject and, more importantly, having put what she learned into practice. Hey, Rosalind, how are you? I am great. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. It's great to have you on the line. Before we get into discussing some of your approaches to childcare, you put out a really entertaining video called How Not to Talk to Children or Anyone, uh, which got like 35,000 hits so far or something like that. Yeah. Wow, I thought it was really, really funny and insightful. I'd just like to know what inspired you to make that video. Um, the, the funny thing about that video is that I... I wanted to make videos like that and I was inspired to make it because everything in that video is things that I see people say to children and um, and it really bothers me how parents like me are the ones who are made fun of on television. We're always like some kind of joke and uh, everyone laughs at, oh, you're not saying no to your children, but you don't you don't have good control over your children. Ha ha ha, you're retarded. Um, and I I. I really wanted to make some edutainment videos where I got to invite people who are parenting like me to laugh at everybody else. And I, and I made that video with my husband. Like I had to beg him to please make that video with me. And he did, he did one take and I made it so that I could put it on YouTube and send it to my friend and ask her if she would be interested in making more of these videos with me. And she didn't really understand the video and it didn't it didn't really go anywhere. And then a couple months passed, I totally forgot about it. And one day I woke up and my inbox had exploded with oh I had suddenly had ten thousand views and a and a blogger had picked it up and, and found it. I don't even know how. And and suddenly all these people were watching it and commenting on it and it was really, really fun. Wow, that is amazing. And <laughs> it's a shame that your husband was camera shy because I think he did very good in the performance. He was awesome. I know. Yeah. So um, what are your views on how parents should talk to children and what are your objections to the ways that you generally hear adults interact with kids? Well, for the most part, um, parenting today makes me feel sad because I think parents have have a really hard time relating to their children and spend a lot of time and energy 
trying to control them and get them to do this or that and get them to think or feel this or that rather than relating to them as people. And um, so my, my goal, I guess, is just to help people see um, that children are people and they can be talked to like people. And if you treat them like people, they will act like people. And, and that you can have an incredible relationship with your child. And that's the only goal. Because when I was, when I was working, um, trying to help parents change their children into who they wanted their children to be when I was working as a super nanny, um, what I learned is that you can, you can make children be a lot of things. You can make them get good grades. You can make them lose weight. You can make them go to law school. You can make kids do. But what you really want as a parent in the end is to have a good relationship with your child and to have a kid who genuinely likes you and who genuinely wants to talk to you and who wants to come home for Christmas when they're 35. And I think a lot of parents miss that. They get caught up in this idea this cultural idea of being a good mom or dad. And there's all these strange things that a good mom or dad have to do. And you get caught up in that. And instead of being who you are and being authentic, you're like, no, no, no. But this is a good mom reads to her kid every night. We have to read. That's, that's what we have to do. Even if you hate it. And even if your kid hates it, you're not even noticing, you're not present, noticing what's really going on. You're busy living this job description that you've been handed by some random people who write shows on TV. That is so wise, and um, it put me in mind of a couple of things. One is that John Lennon reportedly said when he was young, his mum told him the point of life was to be happy, and he went into school, and the teacher asked what did he want to do with his life, and he said he wanted to be happy. <laughs> she said, you don't, didn't understand the question, and he says, you don't understand life. Oh... There seems to be an underlying assumption in the way the kind of parents that you behave who are sadly very much in the mainstream at the moment that children are not sufficient in themselves and don't have everything they need to grow up to healthy, happy, responsible adults who are competent and that somehow we as um grown-up children essentially have to shape and mold them in order for them to have any chance of getting by in the real world and that's yeah. why we have to do all these things by all these archaic rules yeah people won't learn anything unless you make them unless which, you force them <laughs> which is so sad because more often than not the truth seems to be that the more you force people to learn the more they see the concept of learning as a bad thing. Oh, a hundred percent. There's there's every bit of research done on um, on what is it, reward and punishment, the style of school that we do. You know, you you memorize this, and I will give you a good grade and pat you on the head. Or um, all of it has shown that reward and punishment doesn't actually work in the long term. It's very effective in the short term, but it. Whatever you reward children for, whether it's um, altruism or good grades, they will end up coming to resent because people, whether they are three or 33 or 63, they don't enjoy being controlled. And we all have a natural inclination in our head to detest whatever is attempting to control us. And if you're being controlled 
to share your toys or to um, or to spend all day every day memorizing random things, you will come to hate it. So true. And, you know, a reward or a punishment might be effective so long as the judge is present to reward or punish. But as soon as they're out of sight, then. Exactly. 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 And then you end up with an internal kind of psychology where you think about the world in terms of when you're a good boy and a bad boy. And it, it, there's also really interesting research um, on, on people and the way they think about goals. So if you're trying to lose weight, for example, and you are, you are good today, you were so good and you went to the gym, now you feel like you deserve a reward because this type of psychology that you're, you're, you're raised with gets stuck in your head those people are a lot less likely to succeed at losing weight than the people who are not good or bad when they exercise or, or overeat, who just, that's just what happened. And, and they think about their goal in terms of, well, I'm trying to achieve this goal right now, and I'm not good or bad for achieving it. It's just, that's just what I want to do right now. That is actually the psychology that you need to achieve the goals that you want. But people think they need to reward and punish themselves when they grow up. There's a concern about uh, authenticity as well. If we're only being altruistic because we seek to gain a reward and we're only avoiding behaviours which are seen as bad because of the potential for punishment, we can't really be said to have any true values. We're just sort of being political in our behaviour in relation to other people. Right. You're living a script. You're, you were you were handed a script and you chose your role of of good boy and you're just doing what you were told. You're or not actually alive or present or real. Or worse still, you know, you lose hope of ever becoming a good boy and decide to turn to the bad. Exactly, exactly. And then you accept that role. You're a fuck up, and this is what fuck ups do. And it's still just another role. Although I would like to make a distinction from for those people listening between. A reward which is given to try and get someone to repeat a behavior that you like and encouragement would you like to say a bit on on what you see as the difference between rewarding behavior or positive reinforcement as it's sometimes called and giving proper encouragement well I think that one is uh, premeditated one is a premeditated attempt to control and the other is an authentic reaction so when my baby first started walking um, I didn't ever I, I have never told him good boy you're a good boy while clapping my hands but when I first saw him walking I oh my god look you're walking mm. of course I that and that is a 100% authentic reaction on my part I'm not trying to reward him for walking I, I couldn't give a crap but it's so exciting and and it's the same thing when he drew this really awesome picture one day when he got a hold of some of my pretty fancy sparkly pens. And I saw it and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, wow. And I try never to judge it. I try to never tell him what I think of something because I want him to always be the one deciding what he thinks. But if it's an authentic reaction, I'm not going to I'm not going to try and control it out of myself and be like, oh, you can't be excited that your your son just did this awesome thing because that's not allowed. I don't I don't do that. But I don't um, I don't ever premeditate and think, 
oh, Anders, you shared. Oh, I just, that's so awesome. You know, I'm not going to, I don't use verbal rewards. So if I am wanting to see a certain behavior continue, like say when he gives me a kiss and I, and I just want him to give me kisses whenever he wants to give me kisses, I might say I really liked it when you gave me a kiss because that's the truth. But I don't get to say, wow, you're a good boy or you're a good person when you give your mother kisses. Right. Great. Yes, we're not trying to mold people who fit into the image of what we'd like them to be but who can um, understand their our experience of what they're exhibiting. Yeah, we're allowed to be ourselves. I believe in I believe in authentic reactions. And the same is with negative reactions too. If if my son has some food and he throws it on the floor, I can look him in the eye and say, I don't like it when you do that. And I'm not saying you're bad and I'm not saying I'm going to punish you and I'm not saying I don't love you anymore. I'm not going to start not talking to him until he picks his food up off the floor. But I, we're two people and we're in a relationship. And if my husband threw food on the floor, I would look at him and say, I don't like it when you do that. You know, so of course I'm going to give my son honest feedback and that's, that's, that's an authentic relationship. And I hope he gives me honest feedback too. So what, would you say to the objection that some people might have which is that you know later on in life people are going to get rewarded for hard work and they're going to get punished if they don't do they don't follow the rules uh, they could even end up in prison if they don't learn to obey rules and how are you going to create an environment that reflects the reality of the world after they leave your house when you're not imposing punishments and rewards so that that you have you have two questions there um the first one is the the fear that children raised without reward and punishment will work hard um do people work hard without rewards and that's a really interesting question and that question is exactly what led me to the study of hunter gatherers um, I find them to be a fascinating group of people because they don't have the reward and punishments that we have. And they're often, I mean, they spend a lot more time laying around and hanging out and just doing whatever than we do. And the question is, who's happier? Because if, if the barometer of a successful life is how happy you are and how authentic you are and how, how, um, how content you are with the life that you're living, how at peace you are with yourself, then I'm going to say you might not actually need to be very successful in the Western sense of the word, the, the great career, lots of money, lots of, lots of things sense of the word. But then the other answer to that is uh, what Ayn Rand would say and Nathaniel Brandon, which is people who are doing what they love for the sake of doing it rather than for the sake of a reward will actually end up doing it a lot better than the people who are doing it for the reward. So for example, um, if I cook because I love cooking and I'm just having fun cooking, so I end up cooking a lot and doing it all the time and I become this spectacular chef, the chances that people notice that I'm a spectacular chef and then reward me monetarily for it are pretty high. Whereas 
if I can't really figure out what I like to do, but making, but, but I imagine I could make a lot of money being a cook. And so I make myself cook in my free time and I study it and I make myself go to school and I, I kind of hate my job and my life, but I get paid well for it. Um, I mean, which of those people is going to actually end up be making more, making more money in the end? Yes. So what we're talking about is the distinction between extrinsic motivation, the motivation to do something for some kind of reward that it doesn't inhere in the activity, and intrinsic motivation, which is um, self-motivation, wanting to do something because you enjoy the very activity itself. Right. Now, both of those are pretty natural in themselves, according to Carol S. Dweck, who's an expert on motivation. But extensive research shows that motivation to learn for the sake of learning is actually inversely related to a desire to learn for a great achievement. In fact, maybe every study that's ever investigated the impact on intrinsic motivation of receiving grades has found a negative effect. That's the that's one of my main parenting goals is because and that's one of the things that I realized in myself when I was about 25. I realized um I had no intrinsic knowledge of myself. I'd spent my entire life being a good girl and doing what I was told and getting good grades and going to a good school and memorizing things. And I had never really, and then, and then doing things for a paycheck and then doing things for a higher paycheck and then doing things for a higher paycheck. And I had never even discovered or learned what, what was the point of life without rewards? Like if nobody ever knew what you were going to do, if nobody was ever going to see it, what would you do anyway? You know, the intrinsic stuff. I realized I don't, I didn't have much of an intrinsic motivation at all. Right. And if you think of those people who were really intrinsically motivated, well, just a Mozart or a Beethoven would never ever see playing the keyboard as practice. They would see it as doing what came naturally to them to do and they would play their instrument the same way that we might sit in front of the television after a hard day's work that was just what they enjoyed doing it's the same with people who solve really important math theorems they think it's fun that's what they're doing for fun they're not doing it because somebody's like i'm gonna give you a i'm gonna give you a big paycheck for solving this theorem anyway but i wanted to move on to the second part of your question from before which was the fear that children raised without a ruler will enter a society in which there are rulers and you must obey them or you could end up in trouble. And I don't see that being an issue at all because I, I mean, you just, this is, this is our country at my house. This is, this is the country that you live in here. And then when we leave my house, there's a strange, strange place they have all these rules. We have to do these things or they could lock us up. I mean, it's a scary, scary world. Um, I don't I don't see a child raised with a great deal of respect having a problem with going out into the world and playing the game. Yeah, I don't think so either because if you've never been treated with respect or you didn't get as much respect as we might all love to have got, Um, growing up your experience in the world outside is camouflaged if people treat you kind of badly you're kind of used to being treated kind of badly and if people treat you if you're used to being treated kind of averagely then you expect to be treated kind of averagely 
if you've always been treated extremely well, you have a great model and a great standard of relationship built into you. And that's what you'll expect to create with your friends and your romantic partners and your associates. And as soon as someone doesn't treat you in a way that is in line with what has been modeled to you, you'll recoil from it instantly. It'll feel foreign oh my to you. My, my son does that. He's been doing that since he was like nine months old. He'll recoil from the people who get all up in his face and try to poke him and, and act really fake. Um, he doesn't understand because people are very fake with children. They put on these huge smiles and they talk really loud and boisterously. And he doesn't, he literally will look at me with this, like, what are, I don't understand why are, who people, they act like that. Like, and he will walk away. It's, he's very easy to connect with if you treat him like a person, but if you treat him like a, like a, like a child, basically, um, he will stay in my lap and not come talk to you. It's very, but I wanted to say something else about that too. Um, our children are raised right now with a goal of having, especially in school, an automatic reflex to authority so that when they see an authority figure, especially somebody in uniform, they will automatically, without even thinking about it, do what they're told. And, and that is a downside or an upside to being raised the way I'm raising um, my uh, Anders is that um, I don't think he will have an automatic reflex to authority. So when authority tells him to do something, he will probably think about it first. And um, he'll be able to rationally weigh the pros and cons, but it won't be the way it is for me where, you know, if a doctor tells me something or a, or a, or a person or lawyer or a policeman, like I just jump, like, oh, I must do what I'm told. And it is very automatic for me, but I don't think it will be that way for him. Yes, and we've seen the risks in that in the past. Um, the very famous Milgram experiment showed that people were willing to give electric shocks to people when they were asked to do so from psychologists. And, you know, well, the great fascist regimes of all time, if those people who became Nazis had been cho taught to think critically from a young age, they'd be very like unlikely to go ahead with their orders just because they were ordered to do so. Right. Right. What's more, there's um, more and more evidence coming out that children who are expected to do what they're told when they're told are far more susceptible to peer pressure. Oh, yeah. Because they're just transferring what they were told from one person you know, they, 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 their whole life they've been doing what they're told and whether they're doing what they're told from their parents or what they're, whether they're doing what they're told by their friends, they just transfer the, their parental authority to their friends once they become teenagers. So we've talked a lot about what we don't like, which is um, threatening children, bribing them and um, making them do what they're told when they're told. What are your approaches for parents who have very difficult time relating to their children and think, well, you know, sometimes I get them to come along when I want them to come along by saying, you know, if you come, you'll get some candy later or we'll go to McDonald's. Or if they're not getting compliance, they man manage to gain compliance by saying something like, you know, you're grounded if you don't come. If you don't come, I'll ground you. And they say, well, you know, I don't want to take over my take away my child's freedom, but it's just a threat. I'm not actually going to ground him. <laughs> um, 
I would say there's there's an incredible quote um, from William Glasser, who wrote a book called Choice Theory, where he says, the vast majority of unhappiness in the parent-child relationship is the result of well-intentioned parents trying to make children do what they don't want to do. It's so hard for parents to accept how limited they are in what they can do when they are dissatisfied with how their children are behaving. They are limited to controlling their own behavior. Few parents are prepared to accept that it is our attempt to control that destroys the only thing we have with our children that gives us some control over them, our relationship. So the problem is it's the only way you can get someone to do something they don't want to do is through your relationship. So if my husband really doesn't want to take out the trash, but I'm like, please, honey, please do it for me. Um, maybe he'll do it. But if I'm like, Honey, if you don't take out the trash, I'm not going to sleep with you for a month. He's a lot less likely to take out the trash. If well, I, I mean, him. if I was your husband, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, oh, oh, okay. So, I yes, jest, maybe, but maybe jump to it and be like, oh, oh, I'll take out the trash right now because you're threatening me. But I just hurt our relationship when I do that. He's, exactly. he's not taking out the trash because he loves me and because he wants to. He's taking out the trash because of extrinsic motivators. That all, all of that will hurt your relationship. So with my son, um, when he was about uh, 16 months old, that's the age where he didn't really want to get in his car seat. It was about three months where um, every time we got in the car, he wanted to play in the car for about 30 minutes before he wanted to go anywhere. And this was pretty inconvenient to me sometimes if I really needed to get somewhere on time. But what I realized is that this, this whole idea of being on time is kind of a fabrication. It's kind of a, who are you respecting? Are you respecting the, the friend who you're meeting for coffee or are you re respecting the needs of your son? Which relationship is more important? Who is more likely to understand? Your friend who you say, I'm going to be late, or your son who you're using physical force to make him do something he doesn't want to do? And I got, I got very, um, I became very relaxed about the whole thing where I'd, I'd put my son in the car half an hour before I was ready to leave and let him play. And by the time I was ready to leave, I'd say, can you get in your car seat? And he'd climb into his car seat. And, um, and then we'd be at the store and it would be time to go home with the groceries and he would not want to get in his car seat. So I'd say, cool, we'll just, you play. I have my book. I'm going to sit in the back seat and read. And I love reading. Or if I had my phone, you know, texting friends or whatever. And I became very, it really peaceful about letting, about both of us getting our needs met. And the interesting thing that happens is that because most of the time, both of us were able to get our needs met and our relationship was so good. During those times where I would say, honey, I know you're going to want to play in the car, but I need you to get in your car seat right now. I really want to be on time for this. Can you please, please, please just get in your car seat? 99% of the time, he would. And this is a 16-month-old baby that I was negotiating with, that I was wow. saying, please just get in your car seat. Your mommy really wants to be on time for this thing. I know being on time is silly, but but I really do want to be on time right now. I, I I literally had this, the, my, he would always, always happy to cooperate because he was getting his needs met most of the time. So when I ask him for something, it's not a big deal. It's the same thing with pounding on the table. Um, a couple months ago, he went through his really enjoying pounding on the table, making big noise phase. And when we were at home, I would pound on the table with him and we would have a great time and we'd come up with all these 
we, we'd laugh and, and smile. And it was just this really fun thing we did as a family. But then when we got to a restaurant, he'd want to pound on the table. And I would be able to say, oh, no, we can't do that here. We do that at home, but not here. I don't, I don't want to do that here. I would, I don't, I try not to say, I try to always make it about me and what I want and not random rules. So, you know, I don't like pounding on the table at restaurants because I don't want to disturb other people. So he's cool with that because he gets to pound on the table at home and it's fun. He's really happy to accommodate, um, this, this request that I have in the times where I don't want him to pound on the table. It's, the, the cooperation you can get from your child when you cooperate with them or when you focus on your relationship rather than what you're needing, um, it's incredible. So true. So what we're talking about is actually over time creating a deep, vast well of goodwill in our relationships between us and our children or the children we're dealing with. And that is the principle which is adults we try and operate within in our relationships we respect each other's preferences and needs and because we care each, about each other and we want one another to feel good over time we want to do what is right for one another why should it be any different when it comes to dealing with children children are just non-grown-up adults exactly the thing is, some parents might say, like, Roslyn, I love what you're saying. It sounds really great, but isn't there some kind of golden mean? I mean, you know, it's great to do all this liberal parenting and have a really good relationship with your kids. But at the end of the day, you're, they're not your friends. They're your, you're, you're a parent, and, and you have to equip them with the skills that a parent is meant to equip a child with. Uh, who told you that? <laughs> um, that is, uh, the biggest, uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure how to respond to that because that's so, um, that's, that's, that's very sad to me. Um, so, so as a parent, um, the, the question is, what is my job? What is, what do I have to do as a mom? I have to make sure that my child does X, Y, or Z, or I have, or I have failed at the, this job. And, um, I, I don't think about it that way at all. And I actually think that even thinking about it that way is extremely dangerous. And, um, and I'll tell you why, because the minute you start job thinking, um, you, your psychology changes. And when we, when we job think, when it's my job, it doesn't matter what it, my job is, whether my job is to make my child get ready for bed or make him brush his teeth or get him into a good college, or whether my job is to um, make my subordinates obey my every command. When you have a job to do, your psychology, your thinking becomes, what is the best thing I can do in this moment to get this other person to do what I want them to do? You're not present. You're not relating. You're, you're literally thinking of manipulative tactics to get them to do what you want them to do. And you have therefore objectified them. They're not people. What they want doesn't matter because you have a job to do and whatever you have to do to get that job done to them because they're an object they don't matter is what you're going to do 
So the minute you stop relating to people and you leave the present moment and you become this automaton getting a job done, um, you're objectifying the person that you're doing the job on. So true. That was quite a profound speech. <laughs> on a lighter note. Thanks. Though, Thanks. I actually have a whole talk about it on YouTube. <laughs> great. Um, we'll put a link to that so that everyone can check it out. So on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of parents who are just breaking into progressive parenting or attachment parenting, philosophical parenting. It goes by many names. What are the pitfalls? What what can people miss when they're trying to come to this philosophical approach? What don't they know that they should know? How can they take it further? Okay, so this is and this is a big one. And um, so the number one thing that I think um, parents miss because it's such an ingrained script that we don't we we think to question. Wait, wait, hold on. Should I really hit my kid? Wait, hold on. Should I really put them in timeout? Should I really try to control them? We think to question that, but what we often don't question is the concept of our child as a child, that they're just little, that we can't be angry in front of them, we can't expose them to death, we can't expose them to sex, we can't expose them to real life. They have to be sheltered from real life. A lot of parents um, who, they, they struggle, they're like, okay, wait, hold on, how can I respectfully uh, prevent my child from knowing these things? Or how can I non-coercively make my child go to school? Um, because these are, you know, school is the safe place. Or how can I have a good relationship with my child, but not actually be authentic because I obviously can't, can't be angry in front of my child. Um, this to me, the hiding of reality from children is the number one thing that parents like me might be, um, might still be messing up with. Because when you, first of all, there, there's a lot of pitfalls that come from hiding reality from children. Um, number one, you're, you're damaging your relationship. If you are trying to have a good relationship with someone, an honest, healthy relationship with someone, and you're like hiding this huge chunk of your life, that's a problem. Um, and then the next thing is um, when you, when you're hiding reality, when you're saying good boys and girls don't know these things, they don't know these words, they, they don't know about sex, they don't know about death, they don't know about drugs and alcohol, they don't know, they, they don't know these things, you're literally teaching your children that what is good is to not know reality. And that's a problem. Um, children are born just mad scientists, just crazy to learn about reality. And they get this message right, right after they're born um, that they shouldn't know reality. And that infantilizes them. It actually makes them act like children. They, they learn that they are supposed to play this role of, of innocent, kind of dumb child, irresponsible, and they start playing that role rather than being authentic to themselves. Um, and then um, there's, so, so when I think about parenting, um, I think about bringing my son to life with me, like bring your daughter to work day. Um, I think about bringing my son with me to life and uh, just being really honest with him. And I, I, there's a lot of aspects to that, like how much easier parenting would be if we were 
if we did bring our children to life and how much less exhausting parenting is when you're not this fake smiley person in front of them, when you're able to be your real self, parenting is a lot less exhausting because it's exhausting to play a role all day. Um, and then it's the whole um, depriving children of learning about real life things. We don't bring them out into the world. We leave them at home with a babysitter. Um, we don't bring them to life with us. We stick them into a box with other children their age. And um, that is very sad. Every time they're not with you learning about real life, they're being deprived of skills that they could be learning. Oh, well, well said. Yes, it's a shame that in our modern age, still the main topic that is taught in school is how to learn things and then repeat them in, again in an exam. I mean, that's probably the least valuable skill these days because anyone can go and learn anything on Wikipedia or Google that they need to know. Well, um, and, lear and learning skill, learning things by rote and then repeating them out again is is less of a practical skill than it, than ever in human history, at least so far as we've recorded it. Well, and absolutely. And then the other the other thing is I and and you know I could go on and on about school, but um, for me as you know my, the main thing that I think about is my relationship with my son, and I think what does school do? to that relationship, the number one thing school does is school takes my son from me and raises him for me. So my son is learning how to um, socialize and get along with these people. And he's learning rather than, rather than me, my son is being raised by not me, which makes him a lot harder for me to relate to and get along with, uh, especially depending on the values that, that the school is trying to force down his throat. And then the other really big problem with with school and modern parenting, I think, is fiction. Um, good parents, well-meaning parents, read a lot of stories to their children about princes and princesses and dragons and, and things like that, and superheroes. And the sad thing is that children under the age of, of uh, somewhere between five and seven, they can't really differentiate between reality and fiction. So they end up taking on these these fictional ideas as as real and playing them over and over in their in their head like a like a kid who just witnessed a car accident like a like if a kid sees a car accident they're kind of traumatized and they have to they they thought that cars didn't fly through the air but now they see that cars fly through the air and crash into one another and they're they need to figure that out so they play that traumatic scene over and over and over again and it's the same thing when when they watch a when they see a movie or when they read a book about a witch flying through the air on a broom they're like oh i didn't know people could fly but now now i see that they can fly and since they're not really clear on the whole well this one isn't real thing they start to play it over and over and over again trying to figure it out and they won't figure it out because it isn't real and people can't actually fly in a broom it doesn't matter how much you practice you won't be able to um but what it does what all of the fiction does and our children spending the first five years of their lives trying to figure out these things that don't make sense is it makes our children really hard to relate to four-year-olds in a hunter-gatherer society who haven't been who, who don't have to spend all day pretending they're a superhero or a princess are actually really interesting people who are pretty easy to relate to. And I can't necessarily say that because I haven't exactly hung out with hunter gatherers. So I'm saying this from, from my readings, um, just knowing how competent 
four-year-olds are or eight-year-olds in a in a different society or even in our society because fiction for children has only been around for 150 years the victorians invented this the fake world for children because they were the ones who decided to take children out of the real world so they invented the fake world to convince children no no no, don't learn about sex learn about princesses and dragons isn't this more fun on the note of princesses and dragons some of those have long standing effects on the roles of the genders in societies women in many of these stories are seen to just have to wait for their trip prince charming to whisk them out of whatever circumstances they are in and take them to paradise based purely on them being beautiful right and uh, men are are obviously taught to risk their lives um and put everyone else before themselves which is reflected in the fact that men have always been conscripted into the military and work almost all of the most dangerous jobs. So both of these roles are really actually insulting to both genders that women can't do anything except for wait for a man to Cinderella them to being a princess and that the only role of men is to fight for other people and to risk their lives. It's actually, and it's even more interesting than that. Um, uh, it's really interesting studying the the stories of other other cultures at other times and places because it turns out that almost all of our fiction, the the inherent philosophy in it is actually um, war, war as God. We kind of worship war. So in these in these books, there are good guys and bad guys because good guy and bad guy thinking is war thinking and there are winners and losers because winners and losers is war thinking this all the competition and even the way we talk about stories there are protagonists and antagonists this is war thinking if you look into um stories from 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 way long ago before we were um really into this war thinking good guys and bad guys really weren't um it's it really wasn't that way you read the ancient greek myths or you read ancient viking myths and it's not like odin was a good god and thor was a bad god it's like there are these gods and they did these things and some of those things they have were different traits yeah well and and here's something that they did and it really sucked for so and so but you know that's what he wanted to do that they're not judging the way that all of our books are moralizing and teaching children this is what's good and this is what's bad because it's that type of psychology i'm good and you're bad that enables you to go to war that's that's um joseph campbell wrote a lot about this um in in his books about uh, modern religion and it being, you know, our first religion, they, it were, it, they were, humans were trying to figure out how to deal with, um, with killing animals. And so a lot of it was about how the animal was willing to sacrifice his life for those humans who were hunting the animal. And then a lot of the religions for the farming societies were about sex because their entire life revolved around the fertility of the ground. And so they had this whole um, culture of worshiping fertility and sex. And then you have the peoples who are trying to figure out the psychology of killing other people. So they invent these religions that give them that psychology that will enable them to obliterate other populations. And that psychology is I'm good and you're bad. And as, and as soon as we have that psychology about how other people are bad, we can go kill them because they're bad. 
we can be angry at them, we can hate them, we can kill them, we can control them. And it's it sort that- of reminds me of the movie and Glorious Bastards, where it was like, well, I want to write a movie about people killing lots of people. Well, if we make them Nazis, then no one will really care. <laughs> yes, we can have bloody murder scenes about killing Nazis because they stop being yeah. people. You mentioned the Norse mythos, and I was always fascinated by the character of Loki because he starts out in the sagas as a trickster god who likes to play tricks on other people. And over the course of the story, his tricks get a bit more mean until he convinces someone who is blind to kill his own brother, at which point everyone turns against him because he's committed an inexcusable act. But the sagas continue after this point, and the character develops through the stories. He's invited to a banquet under the sea, and everyone's in a bad mood with him. But earlier on in the the sagas, one other god had promised that Loki would always be his brother, so he stands up for him, even though he's not pleased with his behavior. And I think all rich fiction doesn't paint people as purely good or pure evil but as nuanced characters who don't only have a whole bunch of traits but are able to change and their relationships with other people change as they change the kind of thinking that you spoke of the kind of moralistic thinking um we can see so many poor consequences of that. Even the idea that if some, um, a child does wrong, you punish them. That's a enemy image. And why not explain to them what the implications of their actions are? But when we bring up children with this black and white view of if you're bad, you get punished. If you're good, you get rewarded. Then we end up with travesties like the prison system that are full of people, many of whom are guilty of no crime that had a victim, many of whom are guilty of no crime but were put in there due to plea bargaining, and there's no rehabilitation going on. No one even thinks about rehabilitating criminals. The idea in the mainstream is if someone does something wrong, then, um, you know, we just give them an unpleasant time. It's such a waste of resources. It's so expensive. And we could, and so we, inauthentic. Yeah, it's so- we, it's so insane how if somebody robs you, rather than them paying you back, you send them to jail and you never see any, you don't see a dime. You, in fact, pay more of your money to keep them behind bars. It just, it makes no sense. We could have been experts in rehabilitating difficult people by now if the resources we'd spent on upkeeping the prison system had been channeled into that. <laughs> It's the same mentality that sends us to war. Here's an interesting way to think about it, too, especially in in a nuance of talking to children. Um, I read a great article called The Anatomy of Slave Speak. It's online. It's free. Uh, And it's about the verb to be and how the verb to be is a real problem. And most hunter-gatherers, well, I can't say most, but um, it's been mentioned in quite a few of the books that I've read that certain tribes of hunter-gatherers don't actually have a verb for the verb to be. Now, whenever you use the verb to be, you're probably making a judgmental statement. So, So 
instead of if, if you and you're also probably being less clear than you could be. So instead of telling your son, like, you're a good boy, what do you really want to say? Like, oh, I really like what you just did. I really like that you shared your candy with that child. That's what you're actually trying to say um, instead of judging them. So it, it's the same. It's the same with anyone when you're when your wife um, looks really nice and you like you are beautiful you're making this big giant statement, this, this big judgment. And instead you could say, I really like the way you look tonight. And then she might be worried that um, she's not beautiful in the future and she won't get so many compliments. You know, even being on the receiving end of a positive judgment is kind of patronizing because someone is standing up in judgment of you. Yeah, and it's not authentic. It's it's never as accurate as what they could really say. When you study nonviolent communication, it's like the the truth isn't, you know, wow, you are you are a good man. The truth is actually what you did made me feel really happy because I it made me think that people behave this way or it, it it's never as authentic as what you could say if you didn't use the verb to be. So I find it a really interesting exercise for myself, just being really aware of of that particular verb. Well, thank you, Rosalind. I'm glad you found my behavior so pleasant. <laughs> so speaking of authenticity, or not speaking of it since I seem to have just shut up. So you were saying that we don't want to shield our children from the truth. And that becomes particularly apparent and also difficult for us when it comes to things such as you've said as honestly expressing your anger or your frustration, especially if we've been taught not to listen to ourselves from our own background. Now, we want to raise authentic people. And if we can't be authentic ourselves, how can we model authenticity for our children? I'm sure you, I know that's not exactly a question, but I'm sure you have lots to say on the subject. <laughs> well, you can't. That's the whole, um, that's my whole parenting. I mean, one of the major ideas of my parenting philosophy is be the hero you wish to see in your children. You cannot give something to your child that you don't yourself have. You cannot teach your child a skill that you yourself don't have. So, um, the best way for you to be the best parent you can be is to continue to develop yourself as a person and become the best person you can be. When it comes to emotions like anger, obviously we can't, our emotions aren't voluntary, they arise. But I'm sure we agree that there's acceptable ways to express anger and uh, ways that we wouldn't find acceptable. Well, um, acceptable and not acceptable are judgment words. So I would I would avoid that. But I would say there's the kind of anger that um, feels uh, healthy and the kind of anger that doesn't feel healthy. And I would like to say healthy anger um, is not shaming. There's no you are bad. There's no you are an idiot. You are stupid. You any anything with the verb to be um, healthy anger you don't get to use the verb to be. You get to use, I feel so angry right now that you hit me with that. That that makes me feel really angry when you hurt me. It didn't feel good. That my arm is red. I don't like that. I, I feel very angry. And then 
you move on. You got to express yourself. Um, you're angry. You don't get to hold it over them. You don't get to make them do something because you're angry. You don't get to um, continue to be angry for hours and hours and hours. But you do get to be authentic. So if you are still angry, if, if you're like, I need, I need five minutes because I feel angry right now. Like, I need five minutes to just think about it. That's authentic and real. Um, but there's a great book on, on, on this subject called, um, unconditional parenting by Alfie Cohn about, um, not because a lot of parents who decide not to reward and punish their children will accidentally emotionally reward and punish their children. They'll use a system of love withdrawal and love reward when in order to control their children. And it's the same, it's the same thing. Okay. So there's no extrinsic, um, you know, gold star but it's the same idea where your child is is lives in constant fear that if he does something wrong he will lose your love so you have to be very clear when you are angry that there's no loss of love and there's no loss of respect and that when you feel angry it doesn't mean that you'll do crazy things or that you'll be mean it just means that you're feeling angry it's the same as feeling sad when you're feeling sad it means that you're you feel sad uh, um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about love withdrawal because I think it is one of the most prevalent ways that parents reward and punish children. There's this view that if the child's being bad, you can't give them love or anything like that. Otherwise, you're encouraging them to be bad. Oh, so sad. I know. It's, it's very sad. A lot of what we've been talking about has been really talking about changing society as a whole by starting at the root with the children we raise who will become members of that society. A lot of people look around the society we live in and they don't like the power structures. They don't like the warlike state or the fact that the government spies on your emails or won't leave you alone and they have to fill in too many forms and things like that. Everyone, regardless of where they are in the political spectrum, has their reservations about government intrusion into their lives to some degree. And then they look at the workplace, the capitalist workplace, and they think, well, that's very hierarchical, you know. Why is it that there are bosses at the top telling everyone what to do and everyone just needs to do what they're told? Can't we have a, a, a nicer workplace where people cooperate uh, together and there, aren't, there isn't so much hierarchy in the world? But the traditional parenting, and I throw school into the mix with that, which is very hierarchical, trains people for hierarchy and I'd like to th think that in a society where people are brought up as children in a cooperative learning environment rather than a competitive one they will have the skills and talents necessary to create cooperative workplaces and alternatives to the kind of government that we see at the moment. What do you have to say on that subject? Um, government, because the definition of government is the, the uh, quote-unquote legitimate use of force, is inherently disrespectful. And people who have been raised in, an, in, an, in respect, people who have been treated respectfully and people who only know how to treat others with respect, government wouldn't make any sense to them, or at least government as we know it. Um, 
I think that um, that right now, the way we raise our children, we raise people who create the government that we have, who create the society that we have, the workplaces that we have. We raise people who are most comfortable in hierarchies, who that hierarchies make sense to them. They know their place. They know how to behave. They know what's expected when they are the subordinate or when they are the boss. And um, it's it's very sad because the minute you're you're doing that, you're doing something because you know what is expected of you. You're in a script, you're playing a role, you're not in a relationship, you're not relating to people, you're not growing or thriving, you're just, you're, you're dead, you're doing what you're told. And that, that's, that's literally, um, you know, part of the definition of an unhealthy relationship is, is not existing in this moment, but rather just reenacting this script. And, um, it, it's really sad to me, almost so many of the parenting books out there, I would say the majority of them, describe this ideal relationship with children where it's not too permissive and it's not too authoritarian. A good parent is like a benevolent dictator, always always having a smile but maintaining control. And that is uh, really sad. That's exactly where we get our government from. Our children are raised with this idea of benevolent dictatorship, and they grow up to create that world. That's what our, our governments are extremely um, patronizing. No, um, you know, we're just doing this because that's what's best for you. We got we to gotta help the people by making them do what we know is good for them. I mean, that's how our children have been raised. I'm going to make you do this because it's good for you. Yes, you, you can't do anything yourself. We need them to protect us. We can't um, right. create our own systems to protect ourselves because in this modern society, we never get to grow up and be adults. No, no, we don't. But I, don't, so, I mean, do we even know how adults, how respectful adults would behave with one another? I mean, it's crazy. Well, I'm a great believer in, so far, I've, the evidence I've seen that 70 per, to 80% of human behavior is adaptation to environment. So we really need to look at the environment in which we put ourselves and our children in. A seed needs a nurturing environment to grow. When you plant an apple tree, it doesn't give you anything back for years. You need to go out and put the soil and uh, make sure it gets lots of water and when it starts sprouting, gets lots of sun and shelter it if there's too much wind. You know, you might need to put a cane beside it so it doesn't blow over and all these things. And before you know it, a few years go by and next thing you know, your tree is appling and there's apples for everyone. And I really think that people are like that too. You have to invest in yourself and make sure that you're in a great environment um, so that you can finally apple and offer the gifts of your nature to everyone around you. And I see that more and more with associates in their early 20s or mid 20s who haven't got that nurturing in their childhood and are now wondering why, why they, they have no apples to give. And the the number one thing is, you know, you, you, you need to get surrounded by people who love you and encourage you and uh, put good voices in your head rather than bad ones.
So sadly, too many of us have been deprived of the opportunity, but hopefully in the future, there'll be more opportunities available for people to enjoy the kind of lifestyle which your children enjoy and is becoming more prevalent. And um, I really find this way of parenting that we've invented, uh, mom shut up in house with baby or dad shut up in house with baby, um, to be unpleasant. I don't think that either parents or children were meant to stay home all day hanging out with just each other. And I'm always thinking about this, too, um, because I believe in children being a part of the world rather than being excluded from it. And, you know, the interesting thing is that we removed children from the world pretty slowly. I mean, we let teenagers work in the U.S. up until um, the Depression. That was when we finally outlawed and said, look, we don't have jobs for teenagers. Don't let them work. But children love love the workplace. I mean, nobody nobody enjoys giant photocopy projects as much as a seven-year-old. There's no yeah. adult on the planet who wants to spend an hour photocopying, but there are a ton of seven-year-olds who think that is the most fun they could ever have. And it's the same with filing a giant stack of papers. Someone who's just learning the alphabet and getting really good at it, I used to do I used to get stacks of papers to file at my grandfather's bank that were taller than I was. And I thought it was the most fun, awesome thing in the world because that was my current developmental stage. Being able to quickly and efficiently remember what comes before A or D or whatever, that was so fun for me to file. Adults don't think filing is fun. Yes, it's funny that. I mean, because it's all new. And when something's new, it's full of novelty. And we'll end... And it's your developmental stage. Exactly. When something is below your level of skill, it feels like it's a waste boring. of time to you. Yeah. Yeah. Who should do customer service jobs? Teenagers. Oh, my God. Teenagers love customer service jobs for the most part. Um, but who doesn't love customer service jobs is 50-year-olds who really don't want to talk to you anymore. You know, they don't, they don't want to be a waitress anymore. But waiting tables is like the highlight. It was the highlight of my life when I was 13. So it's... It's really wonderful to um, follow what they're interested in and learn about the real world and, and actually participate in the real world. And the other interesting thing is that if you raise your kids in the real world, they will be extremely functional by the time they're 8 to 12, like literally capable of making money and starting a business. If you look at the history of the United States, um, the average 16-year-old in colonial America was ready to start his own business. That's how experienced he was in the work world. And um, oh. if you can picture, and there were there were 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds commanding ships in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. There were, um, the average age of a freshman going to Harvard when Harvard was first founded was 12 to 15 because that's when you were ready to leave home and go pursue a career. So if you started pursuing a career, if you were so effective by the time you were, say, 10, that you were making money, by the time you were 22, you'd have, let's say, $100,000 saved in the bank to go start your own business rather than our current 22-year-olds who are $100,000 in debt. So it's a really exciting sure. opportunity for children to be raised differently and just have a whole different world open to them than our children. Children will be presented with the opportunity to learn by doing and through first-hand experience rather than sort of sat in a classroom with a bunch of other people to become a passive receptacle 
to the lessons of someone sermonizing at them. Right. And you will have the opportunity to, to hang out with um, respectful people of all different ages, too. I don't like the, the age separation of society. I, I think toddlers are awesome and newborns are awesome and seven-year-olds are awesome and 87-year-olds are awesome. And I want all of them to be a part of my life. I think life makes a lot more sense when you're surrounded by people of different ages and it's a lot more exciting and interesting and you feel a lot a lot more hopeful and a lot more at peace when you see the progression of life. Sure. And so that's the other thing is that you might be a seven-year-old here, but when you want a break, you can go hang out with five-year-olds or two-year-olds or 17-year-olds or 37-year-olds. There's, there's this huge variety of people to connect with. Yes, because people of all ages have different things to contribute um, certainly in my life, I have friends of all ages, and I've always noticed that you know the younger friends benefit from the experience of older friends, and older friends benefit from the freshness of younger friends, amongst other things. And it seems to me such a shame that we should ever live in a society where so many old people just end up kind of lonely in a home or something like that, yeah. while a bunch of people are sitting in school not necessarily doing constructive work the, those kids have so much to learn from older people and older people have so much joy to be gained from associating with children it seems that we could do so much with this world if we yeah. just well and you take the school example you you take a whole bunch of three-year-olds and shove them in a classroom with other three-year-olds and they start acting like a whole bunch of crazy three-year-olds because that's what they've been they've adapted to do but in the history of the world three-year-olds never hung out with other three-year-olds they hung out with seven-year-olds and ten-year-olds and so you had three-year-olds who were trying to be like the seven-year-olds and seven-year-olds who were trying to be like the 14-year-olds and 14-year-olds that were trying to be like the adults you have three-year-olds that act a lot differently if they're hanging out with a diverse age group than if you take a bunch of three-year-olds and tell them to hang out together. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Rosalind, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it was to speak to you this evening. You know, if you come back on the show, I'll, I'll give you a cookie, and if you don't, I'll <laughs> uh, bend you over and spank you. Um, uh, although, <laughs> How do you know you wouldn't like that? Oh, well, even if you liked it, I think your husband might object. Yeah. <laughs> True. So you can find her on YouTube. Oh, and, and, and I also have a blog. Um, I, oh, fantastic. Blog. Shout out the blog. It's blogspot.com slash Rosalind Ross. It's, it's my name, the same as YouTube. Okay, fantastic. What a pleasure. Um, hope to speak to you again. Take care now. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye-bye. All right, I'm about to play some funny outtakes from that show. But before I do, I just want to let you know that you should go to my website, beyourselfandloveit.com, and click on the course tab and check out the personal development course that I created for people who are interested in stuff like this to help you attain your potential in this lifetime. I would love to help you to do that. The course is guaranteed. That means if you buy it and you do the exercises and you don't think you got bang for your buck, you just let me know and I'll gladly refund your money. In Florida, right? No, uh, Los Angeles. Oh, damn it. I'm going to edit that out.
<laughs> she now writes and lectures on parenting and has just opened up an initiative. <laughs> this is terrible. This never happens to me, honest. This is the first time ever. <laughs> I feel honoured. Sorry, just a second, Rosie. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. It seems really organic to me. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling great. Um, yeah, this just, is really fun. I, I, it's so fun to share these ideas with people who who agree and then can add to it, rather than people who are just trying to come up with a scenario that, yeah, well, what if what if my you know the it's just so neat. It's so fun to connect with, with someone like you. I'm, this is oh, really Thank fun. you. I'm glad you're enjoying it as much as I am. Yeah. Um, she wrote, blah, blah, blah. 